0: UX Podcast Episode 176 This is UX Podcast. I'm Pan Bum, And I'm James Roy Lawson. And we are humbled by the fact that you are listening to us in 172 countries from Russia to Libya.
1: And we've got for you today a link show. Yay! Now, those of you who have listened for uh, a while will know that occasionally we do a show where we talk about articles that we've recently read during our travels around the internet. Uh, Now, traditionally, we would do three articles... But we've been looking through our research, our our responses we get from our survey, and also listening to people who talk to us. And the feedback we've got is three's too many. And also from experience, really.
0: The when we have to wrap up after each article and we're giving our, each other's hand singles we have to end now because we have to
1: get on to the next article <laughs> we, have, we have noticed how we do need to cram three articles in if we want to keep it within the regular length of time that we have for this show now I've suddenly realized now I'm talking as if I'm doing just a minute again <laughs> I've, kind of, I've got no that. repetition I'm trying really hard not to repeat myself <laughs> don't you buzz me <laughs> So, um, today we have two articles for you. Um, the first article that we will be discussing um, is um, an article um, on Nielsen Norman Group um, by Jacob Nielsen, 100-Year View of User Experience. The second article we will be talking about um, is Five User Research Rules of Thumb uh, by Lisa Re- Reichert. Yeah. I'm
0: saying Lisa Reichelt.
1: Are you saying that? I think we've talked about this before. That yeah. I, I and I aren't the best one at pronouncing names. Yeah. That's yeah. why normally you pronounce the names.
0: <laughs> I've actually think, thought of adding to my blog: "How do you pronounce my name?" and, and sort of inspire people to do, that, do the same.
1: So I nice <laughs> straight away think about my little drawing I did um, a few years ago. At, oh yeah, was um, <laughs> uh, is, is Chris? Not all. Because that uh, got us yeah. to do that. Um, with the, the the axe and the poetry and the My bomb. name,
0: my name in emojis. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> the absolute legend Jacob Nielsen, has written a post entitled "A Hundred Year View of User Experience."
1: Now, J- Jacob, we've we featured over the years quite a lot of articles from from NN, uh, Nielsen Norman Group. Um, yeah. But um, to be honest, I think uh, most of the ones we featured haven't been written by Jacob.
0: That's true. That's true. I've noticed as well. I think you've got,
1: you've got to go back to mm. 2012, I think, mm. um, to episode 23, um, to the last time we discussed something uh, which Jacob said himself, I think, which is when he increased, <coughs> he altered his web design recommendation, saying that um, you should design for 1,440 pixels wide.
0: Ah, Jacob is also behind the tidbits like you need, only, you need to be able to reach everything with five clicks and it has to load in a certain number of seconds and, and rules like that that have been criticized over the years. So Jacob is a quite criticized and legendary usability consultant. And I, I actually, on my, I mean, my career, I've read his blog. I forget the name of it now, the, the yellow one, with the yellow header. Uh, Jacob's original blog that he had before he, s- he started blogging on Nielsen Norman Group. I
1: can't remember it either just now. I can can see it when you've you've (laughs) visualized it for me. It it looked the
0: same for so many years as well, which was fun. Um, Yeah. So, learned a lot. And and in this post, uh, Jacob goes through the history of the UX profession, uh, starting, as he does, uh, in the 50s, uh, and making projections about it until around 2050. Uh, So...
1: So yeah, and then he's talking about how, how the, the, the UX profession has grown massively since 1950, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's now worldwide. Um, but he goes on to predict what's going to happen up until 2050, and saying that that growth is going to dwarf <coughs> absolutely anything we've seen so far. Right, which is interesting.
0: Also, I mean, be aware, and he says in the article, I mean, he doesn't know how many re- UX professionals there are in the world. He says this, these are best estimates. Doesn't really say how he comes to these best estimates. He doesn't really say how. So,
1: oh, (coughs) in some bits he does. He actually mentions a little bit on how he's made when he's looking at the the. The slope of the curve showing the, the growth of e number of UXs over the time. He does talk about the the internet years and, thing and do estimates using LinkedIn data and so yeah. on. So he mentions job job titles and how... He, mentioned, how he mentions
0: how difficult it is, of course, as well. Because mm. in one of the studies they did with 1,045 UX professionals, they held 210 different job titles. Uh, so it's really hard to say where the UX profession ends and begins. And as you and I have talked about, it's product management, is that included or not? Uh, it's really really dif- difficult, but yeah, of course. The, the interesting thing is the is the slope of the curve. How 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 fast does the profession yeah. grow? Yeah, and of no. course,
1: g- prior prior to 1993, the <coughs> the the term user experience basically didn't exist. It was only mm-hmm. then when Don Norman um, started using it mm-hmm. um, for his group at Apple Computer. Um, so so looking back to to, to um, 1950, hmm. you've got to be looking at, um, you know, other aspects of human-computer com- inter- interaction and, and design and computing. Which and is interesting. And computing. Yeah,
0: because, I mean, yes, yeah, Don Orman, I mean, he coined the term UX back in the 90s, but when we started using UX, around w- when it became popular around 2005, 2006, and it really grew uh, in the usability industry, it was because we realized that it's not all about the interface, it's about the entire human experience. Which is sort of why I don't like that he starts with the UX profession starting in the 50s. I'd like mm. to start much, much earlier than that, really, where you even go back to, to Taylor and, and time studies and effective, effectiveness and studying that, going onwards into what the work that Lillian Gilbreth did. And she was the first industrial psychologist thinking about how people are actually affected by fatigue and how they perform at work. And then you go into ergonomics and human factors. And then comes human-computer interaction just because computers came. But that was because they came into the workplace. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. the the study into human behavior and how it it affects how you perform, I mean, it, it dates back so much longer than that.
1: Well, and of course, mm-hmm. and of course, design of, of design of tools and, and, and also communication. I mean, we've been communicating for for thousands and thousands of years. We've been we've been um, developing tools to help us do our work yeah. for, for millions of years. Um, so, so you know, the, the roots of, of how we um, design and communicate um, uh, the the world around us and the tools we use in the world around us is is, is, is as old as we are ourselves. Mm.
0: And I think this is down to the fact I mean I mean Jacob works in the usability industry and has since the start of his career f- for a very long time, so it's very focused on the usability of computer interfaces really uh, and I think that's what I draw most of this when he when he talks about fifties it's computer interfaces and w- the start of that, and w- why it's so hard for me to also pr- with these predictions what is a user interface in the future? We have no idea there's so much talk about artificial intelligence and stuff now so but
1: but but I think the this, this his general principle, general point about the fact that there's going to be a lot, lot more in the future. It's like one percent of the world's population. He was mm. he's kind of he's just guessed, um for 2050. Mm. I mean that that general point about how um, more people are going to be involved in design in the future. I think is a is a very very valid one, interesting one. Um, I mean just just the point he makes about how PC software has changed. That 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 element of of change in in our profession, mm. where until, until the internet came about, the, the sequence with, um, with PT software mm. had been the same as most, trad- most other products and, and, and things you bought, that you'd, you'd um, buy it, then you'd experience it.
0: Yeah. And up yeah. to the
1: point where you purchased it, mm. it was kind of, you've maybe been exposed mm. to sales or, or marketing, but you, you didn't actually experience it until um, afterwards. Whereas with, with the dawn of the internet and e-commerce, um, you, the user experience starts w- so much earlier. I mean, it's 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 it starts in Google or even before Google, and and you know then follows you through an entire path of interactions all the way to the point where you check out, then get something delivered. There's a, a huge experience of the delivery process and even collecting the packet and then even opening the packet. Yeah. Um, if it's if it's something you've you ordered, could around. argue that or,
0: some of that would start with radio and television as well. Uh
1: yeah but but either way the 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 order in which we work in has, has changed yeah. and the the blocks in the chain have uh, changed move places and increased and and so on definitely so yeah so that w- that yeah. was an interesting um, aspect of it to think about too
0: yeah and i I, li- I like the fact how he brings up the pc and web revolution i mean because uh, also in the beginning as he writes the the users of the PCs were the same as the people who were developing for the PCs because those, those were the people who were mm. able to use it. So those were also the ones who were actually buying stuff on computers. Uh, I remember in my early talks talking about the internet, I always said every day thousands of people who have never used the internet before are logging on. Uh, so th- I think that's actually still true. It's still true that- World, Worldwide. Worldwide, exactly, people are still logging on who have never used the internet, which is why usability mm. was such an important thing to argue for that we need to differentiate with the help of usability, uh, what I think is lacking when he when he talks about this is not he he lacks talking about like the attention economics. There is so much information in the world right now, and and that's something that UX can help us filter through a- and uh, help people not be so stressed. Uh, I mean, even with those studies when in time studies back in the early nineteen hundreds. We were talking about fatigue and how people bec- became tired. People are becoming ever tired by this onslaught of information. Uh, and UXers help that. So that's also, I mean, that's something that contributes to, to the growth of the profession mm. and the importance of the profession. Yeah, mm. absolutely.
1: The three, mm. If we, su- we can summarize the, the three areas in which um, Jacob justifies his, his growth prediction. Um, one of them is that there's going to be more UX within your company. Um the second one, of that, that, oh, that's something I think all of us have experienced. Mm-hmm. We've seen how we've gone from being people who are not even recognized as UXers, doing things on the sly, to, to being part of teams and having teams in many organizations. Then more companies are doing UX. Again, we can all recognize this, that there are there are companies, um, even traditional, um, more um, slower-to-adopt companies yeah. uh, have UX resources or UX teams now. Um, and then this is the big one, uh, that more countries yes. are doing mm. UX. Um, Jacob, in the article, reflects on how back in the day, mm. uh, it was basically the US, the UK, and Scandinavia mm. were doing um, UX. Um, and now it's worldwide. And I, I mean, all I can do is, is back this up with our own listener stats um, during the last mm. um, seven, seven years. I, I looking back to 2013 which is okay 5 years ago mm-hmm. um, we had listeners um in about 30 countries
0: that is really interesting yeah
1: and now um w- w- it's over 170 but uh, on average um each month it's around about 100 mm. but it's, it <clears throat> still means though that um you know the the amount of countries that that we reach has has exploded in the last um Five years, exactly. And um, also, his
0: point is, I mean, that's why s- most of us actually don't see the growth because the g- because the growth is happening in other countries. It's happening in China. It's happening in, in Indonesia, like he mentions. And, and yeah. even us, we noticed when we first went to UX Lex in Portugal, uh when we were talking about the people uh, located in Portugal, the people who work there, they were saying UX is not that big. But that has every year we've gone to to Portugal, it's actually increased. <coughs>
1: Yeah, it's very easy to look at this from your own mm. bubble of your own country mm. and your own or your own state or your own city. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um it's it's incredibly difficult to to really contemplate how this is on a on a on a global scale. And I think that's that's where um Jacob's prediction really does I think have some strength in that globally. I think we are going to be a lot more. Mm. We actually uh, what we did we had a discussion about uh, well, not directly about this article, but around this topic of, of the future um, of UX on a, uh, um, a group we have here in Sweden for, for UX, UX Spheria. Um And there we talked a, a lot about um, how other things would remove the need for UXs, such as AI, machine learning. Mm. I think you mentioned this a little bit earlier yeah. in the show. Um, AI, machine learning, <coughs> the, 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 the bot revolution, and even blockchain, that all of these things would, would reduce or eliminate the need for UXs mm. So there was a discussion there about how, in the future, we'd be less, not more. And that was interesting because
0: I saw some of the comments were around, well, when the interface disappears, what will happen then? Because man, I, well, <laughs> it's hard for someone not working in the UX sometimes to realize, that, well, even a voice interface is still an interface. Uh, people who look at the industry from the outside, uh, as this person who commented does, I know, because he works mostly with conversion and SEO, uh, hmm. is that. The, you look at the screen and glass screens, flat screens, and, and that type of interface. But the interfaces are so much more than that. Uh, and that's sometimes hard for people to grasp. Even uh, interfaces for bots, that is actually designing how do you respond to a bot? What? How is the language used? So
1: there's so much
0: still to be designed for the communication and experience to
1: happen. And of mm-hmm. course, we're, we've also not got to forget the research aspect. Yeah. Um, now, yes machine learning and and um aIs and so on can do a lot of groundwork in um, producing variants testing variants and so on but we're we're still a long way away from the next stage of AI we we've heard this from um, in other chats about how we're still on narrow AI where the AIs are doing tasks Mm. You, tell, you, you let, take, teach them to do a task. The, the next stage where it's broad, you know, the broad AI, where they can think more like us, we're, we're, we're way off it. Um, and the creative design aspect of what we do and the observational uh, research um, and understanding of people's emotions and behavior yeah. and what they're, how they're experiencing things, that, those aspects of, of user experience design, um, I think are still probably decades away from being... Um, replaced by something else.
0: Yeah, I mean, the key, the key point being then empathy, really. How, how yeah. and finding the why, but why behind why
1: humans <laughs>
0: do, do stuff. Uh, because mm. you can do these A-B tests. You can, you can measure everything with Google Analytics and, and understand the path that people take. But you never understand why until you actually sit down with real users and talk to them. Uh, uh, so, I mean, yes, that won't go away.
1: I think the blockchain comment that we've, we've discussed mm. blockchain a fair bit as mm. well about how um, the blockchain revolution would um, mean that so many transactions, so so the need for things like trustworthiness mm. and um, um, and openness mm. um, in in some of the transactional things we do on the mm. internet would um, would vanish because mm. we'd all just trust blockchain mm. or blockchain would do it under the mm. surface but I, th- I think there is is uh, we're missing something i think about the the fundamental psychology of 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 humanity um <laughs> yeah. and, and and how long time it takes for for us to accept on a mass level um things that just happen under the surface mm. and even though i i believe that blockchain will make a big difference in areas that we haven't fully seen yet um I uh, no nah, again we're we're a long way off from and, from and humanity at large accepting right. it as 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 running water and
0: somebody still has to decide how that blockchain makes a difference somebody has to design it somebody has to to design the communication that happens between a sender and a receiver and reduce the entropy and friction and is in between that communication process
1: yeah and i I think as well when you look at the numbers of uxs um, i mean i i'm still we're still seeing organizations as as Jacob points out, that you know they don't have UX in their organisations. Mm. You know, I mean, I I work and and you actually do as well. Work a lot with with enterprise UX, mm. uh, working with systems that people use as part of their jobs, not not a, a transactional website where people buy like from Amazon mm. and so on. Um, I mean, I, I I struggle to think um, of a. I mean, I I look forward to the day maybe where a lot of the systems internally are, are replaced. Um, by voice interfaces or or um, s- something designed by else one but can you imagine a time where we're not going to have any time reporting systems or or expense systems or or journaling systems um, oh i can imagine it but
0: <laughs> but not, well, ra- can, not okay. realistically <laughs> but i can imagine it
1: <laughs> not not in the near future no definitely not I'm, st- mm. you know, still mm. got systems. You ru- ru- mm. Organizations are mm. running Vista, Windows Vista, mm. and running, uh, you know, text-based systems from the nineties. Mm. Yeah, we're we're decades away from some of these things vanishing. Yeah. So, so, in my opinion, the summary is: I'm actually, i actually, I actually think that Jacob's probably not far off. There's going to be a, a lot of people doing a lot of design work. Yeah. I, I, I also think he's
0: not far off. Uh, I just I want to end with the, the note that he makes in the, in the end where he actually had two, two opposing viewpoints uh, in essence where he first makes the point that uh, in the future we'll be solving the advanced economies productivity problems and ex- expanding the goal of the UX profession beyond the current obsession with addicting users to their social media feeds, which is a pretty, uh, I don't know, sad view of what UX is. And he goes on to say that when he says that, yes, 1% of the world's population will become UX professionals, and the other 99% will be thanking us as they will finally master technology. And so which one is it? Uh, I mean, how, will he, how is he confident that we will move from making people obsessed with social media to solving the world's problems? I mean, either mm. people will actually thank us or they will be hating us.
1: Oh, mm. that's a very good mm. point, pal. Can you can we survive the journey mm. to where he's predicting mm. without being burnt at a stake before then? Exactly. So, our second article for you today is 5 user research rules of thumb by Lisa Reichert.
0: and I would say Reichelt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> tomato tomato. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we have actually featured one article before by Lisa, um, that was in episode 96 back in 2015, uh, when she'd written an article about when experience matters and when it doesn't, her, her look on when it's really important to have um, um, specialists, um, domain specialists in your team and when it's not. Mm. But this article, though, is um, Lisa giving a, a reflection looking back on, on the work she's done uh, with user research, um, some kind of golden rules, some rules of thumb of of what you should try and strive to achieve when planning or working with um, user research, based on what's worked for her during mm. the years.
0: Yeah, so, so um, It's, a, uh, yeah. it's uh, an invitation really to discuss, is this how you do it, could you do it better, or, or I mean, exactly, this is how I've, I've been doing it, it's been working out for our team for, for many years, but... Maybe there are ways to tweak that, or somebody could actually take from it and build upon it,
1: yeah, I think she actually says that it's um um yeah over the years mm-hmm. of experience you've been to collect ways of working and talking mm-hmm. about how you work that um create accret- into rules of thumb. Here are some that I reference pretty often, so these are things that she also preaches mm-hmm. um and um uh, well you know they're they're by and large pretty good um I think we'll we might as well go through this yeah, these it i mean there's this five of them um so we'll we'll go through them because um i think they've all got they've all got things you can say about it so the the first one she says is basically the one well a one-to-one ratio that um for every for every unit of research you do you should have a unit of analysis that's just as much time now uh, Lisa says herself, that she thinks that it used to be in the early days a, a, a higher ratio. So you do um, twice as much analysis um, as you did research, recording of research. And I'm, I'm pretty sure she's correct about that. It might even have been higher mm-hmm. than two. Um, I mean, I, my own experience, you know, that if you've done a full day of usability testing, it takes you more than two days to properly summarize it. Um, so if I've, if I've done commissioned reports... Then you would spend twice as you know you twi- twice as much time as, as the research, um, but um, she reflects on that was before agile, um, which of course you know, you've got the faster cycle, so you you don't have the maybe the luxury of the two to one ratio, so but she says stick to the the one to one, and importantly here, um, if you don't intend um, and allow time to do the analysis, you shouldn't bother even doing the research
0: exactly, and that's what. So many get wrong. They do research, they don't analyze. But also, what I've seen, they don't even act on the research or act on the analysis. I mean, that's such a rookie mistake, but it keeps happening over and over o- across the years. I mean, even yesterday, I tweeted. I, I, every time I unsubscribe to an email newsletter, uh, almost every time you get this uh, these options. Why did you unsubscribe? And there's like seven different options. And I click one of those, and there's time spent on thinking. Why did I unsubscribe? Is anyone really looking at that data? I'm not confident mm-hmm. enough that anybody's actually looking at it. So why do you collect it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and also uh, one thing that I, I, I really try and strive to do all the time is um, not to deliver insights, um, but to, li- to deliver actionable insights. So recommendations of next steps. Yeah. Um, that's, I've been striving to do that more and more in recent mm. years because um, it's always the next question anyway. Mm if you if you give some you know summary of some research you've done uh, the 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 question that always comes back is well what should we do to fix that
0: exactly or what should mm. we do
1: instead what should we do better so you might as well you know prime that discussion or or start that discussion off by by saying what the next step should be in your opinion mm.
0: and that is actually very much connected to her second point about the 7030 rule where you do Thirty percent of your time on research, but it's rest the rest—the seventy percent of your time—is spent on communicating, helping, and persuading people to understand and act on the research. And that's she. Mm. She has a link to an, another article, which she, she mentions. What could this be? Like, it's, it's not just discussions. It's prototyping. It's sitting with developers. It's about pri- prioritizing features and stories. Doing blog posts about the research. It's about presentations, demos, posting mm. stuff on walls. This we talk about a lot. Post stuff on walls but so people see it all the time
1: yeah mm. getting getting buy-in yeah. from from stakeholders mm. you know product management mm. um all of this stuff takes mm. a, a huge amount of time uh, not just not just um time in 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 hours but also time in calendar time yeah. um which i think is one of the one of the incredible challenges of an of of agile way of working mm. is um some of these some of these research seeds um you know the the insights you found these need to be planted and can sometimes take uh, several sprints before uh, enough stakeholders, enough people in your team or organization fully understand and appreciate the the the, the nugget of, of, of information you'd uncovered. Yeah. One, one thing I do have a little problem with here is is, is the mathematics of these first two points. Um, uh, because if you're, if you're doing one hour, say if you do a day of research mm-hmm. and then you do a day of analysis, it, is that then 30%? So that leaves you then with six and a half days for communication. No, f- sorry, oh, four. Yeah. Four and a half, four and a half days. Four and a half days. So six and a half days in total. You see what I mean?
0: Oh yeah, I see what you mean.
1: Yeah, so mm-hmm. so if you think about your working week, mm-hmm. then what 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 the saying with these first two points is um you you're basically doing one day of research every two weeks.
0: Which makes sense with the two week rule. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, which we'll get onto <laughs> now. So the third, the third point of, um, um, in Lisa's mm. article is um, the two-week rule, mm. which looks very mysterious at first. Mm. Um, and then even when you read it, it's kind of, wow, what does she really mean? Mm. Don't design anything for more than two weeks before you watch people using it. And then um, I, I read it a couple of times in you tweak. Oh, right, yeah, you mean don't let things drag on too long in development. Mm. Um, or in design phase, at any point of your, your your of your design process, that you should be working for something maximum two working weeks before you go out there and do some research, yeah, get more feedback on it. More research, more research. Sorry, mm. yeah, feedback mm. and, and and iterate, mm. um, and that's that is one of those ones which I, I I want you all to go out there and preach more because I think we fail at this constantly and everywhere.
0: Oh, I totally agree. I, we fail. in I mean, this, these are so hard to follow. Uh, and as you say with the maths, I mean, you have to be spending a lot of time on research. Uh, and I, I've argued sometimes that, yes, we should set aside. We have a set point like every second uh, or every f- first Friday of the month, we have booked sessions with users. Because there's always, always, always something to put in front of users. There's always something to put in front of you. There's always something to yeah. learn. There's so always insights, insights to gain. So why not have it booked constantly across the year? Yep. Yep. But it's so hard to get buy-in for that.
1: <coughs> Absolutely, yeah. but, it's, but it's, it's, I think it's the only way yeah. to really get on top of it. Because the, the, the difficulty with, with the way we work now is the momentum. Yeah. Um, that you've got the momentum of continuous sprints um, and, a, and a continuous sprints requires a continuously mm-hmm. groomed backlog. Or you know a continuous list of updated list of things that are well mm. defined to implement, which means a continuous um, uh, sequence of research, um, n- research for new, s- new features, but also um, uh, analysis and, mm. and checking and verification of things that you've already designed, um, uh, assessment to see whether the world has changed mm. and whether your users or visitors or, or whoever it is are still behaving in the same way as when you did your original research. There's, there's so much as in a constant state of flux. That the only solution is exactly what you say. You need regular sessions to be booked in, mm-hmm. and they don't—they shouldn't be completely connected to your sprints, design sprints. Mm. Uh, sorry, your your production sprints, your development sprints, because there's so much more going on than what you're working on right yeah, now. That will help you prioritize.
0: And actually, in the links, the link that she has, that she when she wants to show you more about this she talks about experimenting with research methods because sometimes you get stuck in a rut you, you have a research method that you like like having like uh, sit sit have people sit down and talk talk their way through their interface but there are so many other ways to listen to people and i would encourage more people to go out and think about how they, they can do research online like and go and observe groups that with customers that are online uh Find data all over the place because the, all of that will inspire you. Because it's, when it's so hard to get buy in for doing it every two weeks, s- make sure that you get feedback every two years in other ways, two, two weeks in other ways. Because it's, it's possible now, it's possible with the internet to actually have contact with a lot more people and get feedback from them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it It can be difficult. I mean, meaning me you're working, as we've mentioned, so much with, with internal systems mm. um, or enterprise UX, That that isn't always as straightforward as you may think. Exactly. Um, getting access to mm. the people might be okay sometimes, but getting your thing out there to test is not always straightforward. Mm.
0: What I've noticed is transparency helps so much. If you're transparent all the time about what's going on, then it's much easier for people to get curious about where y- or y- what you're doing and actually themselves feel an incentive to give, provide feedback. Uh, so if you have like an, an internal blog where you're posting all the insights that you're learning across time, people will mm. eventually get interested because they're not used to, <laughs> to that type of transparency,
1: unfortunately. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then um, talking about the usability, usability testing mm. or testing mm. in general, mm. the, the fourth point in Lisa's list, or um, rule... Um, is more than three less than ten so so basically what she 's saying here is if you 're doing some kind of um, you recruitment for testing um you need between f- well you need four to nine participants mm. um, so not not less than f- four and not more than ten in the first instance because mm-hmm. that 's going to give you enough i think the argument there is that it 's going to give you enough information to to Move forward. Yeah. She. Um, I mean, yes, we're, we're ignoring the whole sample size thing. Um, that's a different. I mean, that's a whole another kettle of fish. He's talking about sample sizes, mm. but um, um, but by and large, you can move. You can move forward without getting hung up on the fact that you've not created a statistically um, you know, significant um, sample size of results.
0: Which is not the point of qualitative research, really. No, It ha- doesn't have to be statistically significant in that way. And But the most important point with, with this qualitative research is, uh, for me, getting the right people. So make sure you actually have people who are relevant to the study, not just anyone. There are so many recommendations out there about just show it to some colleagues and you'll get some feedback. That just doesn't give you the right prioritizations because mm. that just won't. That may actually be more harmful than helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, you can yes. get snowed into the wrong corner. Mm. Now, the, the the fifth rule um, is, uh, I mean, arguably this is a, this is the most contentious, I'd say, um, or the the ones you could probably debate longest about. Yeah. It's one researcher per team. Now, the, the point here really is: don't spread your research resources too thinly. Um, allow your researchers to. And to concentrate um, in one area at, at, at a time, uh, or one team at a time. This helps them then uh, maintain the 70-30 rule and even the, the, the one-to-one ratio rule. Um, if you spread them out too thinly, then that, that suddenly they're needing 200% time, which effectively means they have 50% time for each team if they're dealing with two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you get very quickly to the point where their research is useless. Because it's just not of a quality that helps. True. Um, Now, Lisa goes on to say that you should read this rule as at least one rather than only one. Um, Because some teams will require multiple researchers. Right. And at the very end of the rule here, she says, avoid discussions about ratios of researchers to designers to devs whenever possible. And I think this is an excellent point because it's one of the, uh, the 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 whole ratios of team makeup is something that comes up really quickly and really regularly like how many UXs per team mm-hmm. and you know we hear everything from um you know for one UX for every four developers five developers oh absolutely maximum 10 developers um and and the, the research question comes in sometimes but not not anywhere near as often because UX gets bundled as one unicorn mm-hmm. that's there per team um and you know, if you've got one researcher, is it then you know two UXs? Is it then ten? De- oh, so I can understand what she says. Avoid this because it's, it's not about numbers. It's not about resources in your team specifically. It's about um, getting the right job done.
0: Exactly. You, you have to think about the goal, not not how the team is constructed, uh, and so and especially in UX. I mean, we always argue about how much. Uh, research does one UX or do how much interaction design do they do? It's so it's different. It's
1: per individual basis, really. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and as we've discussed, um, I think mm-hmm. the um, the skills ladder that we talked about with um, Alyssa Briggs um, in episode one hundred seventy three, mm-hmm. that is actually much more important, I'd argue, than mm-hmm. than in kind of like you know d- mm-hmm. resource mm-hmm. ratios. Because if you've got you know one person who is very strong in certain aspects of research, mm-hmm. but maybe weak in certain aspects of of visual design. Mm-hmm. Then that team might require a second or even third resource. Yeah. Whereas if you've got like one who's incredibly specialised in research and one that's incredibly specialised in other aspects of UX design, then then maybe two or maybe even in some cases it's one. You know. So the the ratio is not really relevant. Right. It's all about the individual skills that are forming your team, and to make sure that the skills you require in that team to produce to reach the goal you're talking mm. about. Uh, is what's important. And
0: sometimes you don't realize that until you, uh, a few months have passed because it's also about the chemistry within the participants of the team. And some developers are really good at attraction design or visual design even. So, and if you sit down with a developer and give them feedback, how do they respond? Do they respond in a good way or a bad way? And do you then have to spend more time influencing them into understanding the research? And so, so it's complex.
1: It's mm. complex, but always do research. Mm and have time, or us do always have time for research. So the, um, the links to these articles and other things we might have mentioned while talking about them, you can find on uxpodcast.com. Um, and also, there's an archive of every single other show we've ever done. If you're not already a subscriber, then please go ahead and add us to your favorite podcasting platform. No, hold on. We're already on the platforms. You add us in your favorite podcasting client, Um, such as Apple. They used to be called called Podcatchers. Podcatchers, they did. Um, (laughs) And it used to be called iTunes, but it's called Apple Podcasts now. So you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, (laughs) and pretty much everywhere if you just search for UX Podcast and look out for our little new logo. Thank you all for taking the time to listen. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Knock. Who's there? Broccoli. Broccoli who? Broccoli doesn't have a last name, silly.